unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David Garfinkel, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good, Nathan. How about you? Oh, man, I'm doing fantastic. I am so excited about this week's episode. Why don't we just let the listener know what we're going to be talking about? Sure. The The main point is there's a lot of people who think, you know, it's either copy or it's nothing. And copy can do everything. And if you can't do everything with your copy, then you're lame and there's something wrong with you. And I want to uh, disabuse people of that notion. Like those, I don't know, $40 million where it's not all produced by copy, but it wouldn't have happened without copy. Would that disabuse you of a notion? Well, let, let me tell you a story, okay? Okay. So, you know, uh, back in the old days, we didn't have the internet. We would either have direct mail, where you'd mail out a letter, or you'd a- advertise in magazines, or I guess door hangers or <laughs> matchbooks or something. And so you, to do direct mail, you have to get a list. And that's a list of names that you can put on envelopes or on stickers that go on envelopes. And that's where we're going to start. So if you've ever bought a direct mail list, and this is still true today, you can get a typical compiled list for as little as 10 cents to maybe 25 cents a name. And sometimes even less than that, a compiled direct mail list is usually put together from publicly available records. And... It's like the phone book, basically, if there's still such a thing. And it doesn't tell you anything about two important things, the desires or the behaviors of the people on the list. Those are crucial for direct marketers. So it's not worth that much. But if you want desires and behaviors, then you might want what's called a response list. This is people who have responded. For example, magazine subscribers, they responded to an offer to buy a magazine, seminar attendees, product purchasers. And response lists are made up of people who've demonstrated their desires through behavior. Let's translate that into English. That means they bought something, okay? And when you buy something, that's a behavior that shows a desire, okay? The people who sell these lists know these names are a lot more valuable than the compiled list. So with a response list, instead of 10 cents or 25 cents, you might pay a dollar a name, $5 a name, maybe $10 a name, okay? But there's still a higher level of pricing of lists. And that's where you buy qualified leads. People have raised their hands and say, I want to buy something. I just don't know which one thing to buy yet. Qualified leads for prospects who are interested in making high dollar purchases. For example, here's an interesting fact about the insurance industry. 85% of all new salespeople in the insurance industry wash out, quit, go off, work at McDonald's, become CEOs. I don't know what they do, but they quit. They wash out within two years. It's not necessarily that they're all such terrible salespeople either, or even that they all hate selling insurance. It's that it's so hard for most of them to keep getting enough qualified leads to stay profitable. Now, the people who sell the leads, the qualified insurance leads, they know this. And so you can pay astronomical prices for highly qualified insurance leads from mailing list brokers and lead brokers. Remember we started, Nathan, we started at 10 cents a name with compiled lists. Mm -hmm. Well, insurance leads can run as high as $60 for each name, which is $600 more than 10 cents. And maybe you can pay even more than $60 depending on 
how qualified the lead is. Now, why would someone pay so much more for a name? Here's why. Because in the right hands, a $60 insurance lead has the potential to create a four, five, or six-figure commission, one sale for the insurance agent. And in rare cases, a skilled and lucky life insurance agent can make over $1 million in commissions just by selling one policy to a lead like that. Now, okay, great. What does all this have to do with copying? Very interesting tutorial on lists and leads and costs, David, but what does this have to do? Well, here, am I suggesting that copywriters go into the business of writing copy that produces qualified insurance leads? No, it's not a bad idea. If you can figure out how to do that, you make a lot of money, but that's not what this episode of Copywriters Podcast is about. I'm telling this story from 10 cents to $60 a name to make this point. In an insurance sale, like I described, the million dollar commission does not come solely from the copy, but the very expensive name is one part of the traditional direct marketing process. And if you use copy to solve a big sales and marketing problem, which may only be one part of a larger sales process and could be something other than getting a qualified lead, as well as getting a qualified lead, you can really boost the bottom line of a business. Or if you negotiate a good deal as a copywriter, make a lot of money for yourself. So here's the point. You don't always need to use copy to close the entire sale. A lot of people think that's the only way to use copy when you're using copy to sell, but it's not. Today, we're going to explore some of the other ways that copy helps you get more business when it's only part of the process. But first, here's some copy many listeners have grown to know and love. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health and finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. You know, my larger clients do this all the time. Okay, so. Before we, before we jump into it, can I ask you a question real quick? Oh, for sure. Go ahead. So you were talking about buying different types of lists from list brokers and uh, sorting out qualified leads and sorting out uh, intent and, and uh, behavior. Um, can you tell people a little bit about uh, what I believe is referred to as data cards? Mm-hmm. A data card is sort of like a little ad or a little description of a list. Um, I don't know where you get them. I mean, you can go into a book. You can probably get it at the library. It's very expensive. You can buy it. It's called Standard Rate and Data Service, SRDS, and it's full of data cards. A data card is basically a description, a detailed description of a mailing list. And what kind of stuff is, when you say detailed description, because I think it kind of ties into what you were getting at, uh, what kind of stuff is on the data card? Well, um, they will they will describe the types of names on the list. If there's demographic data, like income, zip code, um, cars that they own, uh, type of house they live in, job titles, that will be on the list. The cost will be on the list. They call it CPM. M is uh, part of a Latin word for thousand, not million thousand. So cost per thousand, and there'll be a dollar figure, those kind of things. 
Okay, cool. I just, I figured that was one of the things that kind of tied into what you were talking about and I wanted the listener to know about it. No, it's, it's, it's a good question. It's a good question, but I, um, I, I may have steered this conversation in the wrong direction by talking so much about, about lists. The, the point of a list is a list um, can get you one part of the way, and I'll, I'll explain the whole the whole course, the whole distance, the whole way <laughs> uh, later uh, towards the sale. And if you can create a list yourself with with lead generation copy, but and and sometimes the list is the most important thing. Uh, Bob Stone said the list is forty percent of the effectiveness. Uh, the offer is forty percent, and the copy is only twenty percent. Now, as a copywriter, I find that um, a little <laughs> offensive, but. He's right. <laughs> well, and I think that's one of the uh, misconceptions that people have is, and I, I don't want to um, downplay the importance of what we do, but I do hear a lot of people say, well, if you learn how to copyright, you can sell anything. And that is true to an extent, but there's a lot of pieces that have to kind of prop up or help the copy. A lot of times the copy can't just stand on its own. Um, even though that that uh, that may not be what we want to tell people, that is the case. And so I think today what we're going to be talking about is some of those things that add support to the copy. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like saying, well, if you have a car, you can drive anywhere. Uh, <laughs> well, you might need gas, you might need roads, you might need a map. I mean, yeah, copy is really important, but it's part of a larger picture. And, and that's what I want to talk about, the larger picture. Now, sometimes you can create the sale by getting the right piece of copy in front of the right prospect, but that's not always true. And that's what I want people to know. Okay, cool. All right. So let's, let's start at, at uh, square one. Let's start with what copy is good for and what it's typically used for. All right. So uh, one thing you can, use copy to create the complete sale pretty much is a small price product sale, a book, a gadget, everything under the sun, which would be Amazon, <laughs> right? Uh, tickets like at StubHub, uh, stuff in your garage that you would like to trade for cash, like eBay, which owns StubHub, by the way. And that's called a one-step sale in copy, one step. Uh, and in the sales world, it's something like that is called a one call close. It means the prospect shows up, you make your pitch or you show them your copy. They say, here's my credit card or here's cash or here's a check and they buy and it's done. And I, I wanted to mention that this whole episode was inspired by a long and spirited thread on Facebook where I asked my friends and my followers, my fans, um, about closing high-end sales with copy. And some people adamantly insisted that if the copy was good enough, that was all you needed. Mm. But I am not sure how much actual experience in the real world those people had, because the people who gave examples said copy was often part of a high-end sale, and that live conversations were often used after the copy generated qualified leads. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Now, let me play the devil's advocate on that point. To be sure, there are people like Frank Kern and Dan Kennedy who can fill a 10K seminar with copy alone. 
and have done so more than once and continue to do so. At least Dan does to this day. And maybe Frank does and haven't been in touch with him lately. Uh, there are publications, magazines like Forbes and Bloomberg Businessweek, and they fill up high-end conferences and cruises the same way, just with copy. So it's not impossible. But I would say it's more the exception than a rule. Can Can I ask a point of clarification on that? Sure. How much, you say that it's copy alone, how much do you think just the fact that it is Frank Kern or it is Dan Kennedy leads to that? Because I wonder um, if, if I wrote, if I had the same seminar, same price, wrote the exact same copy, sent it to the exact same list, but put Nathan Frazier instead of Frank Kern as the, as the speaker, I think that, I think the, the, uh, the weight of, of their personalities probably leads or lends to the, to the, uh, to the impact of the copy. Wait, wait, can you hear that in the distance? I, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I'm hearing. Nathan Frazier's giving a seminar. Nathan, 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 <laughs> Nathan. Um, well, not only what you said, but Dan Kennedy was once not Dan Kennedy. I, you know, I told a story on another podcast where he promoted a copywriting seminar. Not one, not two, not three, but four people showed up. I was one of them. That was 22 years ago. So, yeah, it's who they are, but also these things take time, mm -hmm. you know? And boy, the information I got from him was stellar. And, you know, he did another one next year and had 300 people. He just realized he hadn't promoted it the right way. We all do that. Everybody has those, those situations. But yeah, I think you're right. Their, their names and their following and their reputation and the length of time they've been in the market. And everybody here, listen real closely to the next word, their consistency in delivering quality and exciting stuff is key to making it happen. Yeah, and, and Frank Kern and Dan Kennedy are both known for consistently putting out very high-quality material. Absolutely. But let's talk about the, the other piece, where copy makes more sense as part of the sale. And I'll take my own uh, example. Now, maybe today I could do this entirely with copy. I'd sure like to think I could. But um, a few years back, a number of years back, my... $5,000 a seat breakthrough copywriting seminar in Las Vegas. We had to talk to almost every other person after they had read the sales letter. And in the Facebook post that inspired this episode, a lot of people reported similar experiences. This isn't a flaw or something shameful. This is reality. Um, since the hardest part of marketing a high end event is often simply generating a hot lead, someone who really wants it and wants to buy, this is still a very workable situation. Now, here's another situation where copy is going to be part of the sale. It's where people have to see what you're buying. They can't see a picture of it. They can't use virtual reality. You can't describe it. You can't make a movie about it. They have to touch it and walk through it. Um, for example, you can use copy to generate leads for residential real estate. And I'm sure it's possible in some cases to close the sale with pictures and something that's sight unseen in person. But usually a home buyer wants to walk through the house and see the neighborhood before they buy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, how about a personal service like coaching? Only one client, one mentoring client in recent memory signed up without talking to me. And that was an unusual situation because of 
a referral from a very trusted source. Generally, people I'm going to mentor want to talk to me first, and they've already been to my website and filled out the application form. And guess what? I want to talk to them too before we both say yes, because there's some personal chemistry that's necessary to establish to make that kind of service work. Here's another example where copy can do the big part of the job, but not the whole job. And that's with something like a job application. You know, uh, for a regular J-O-B job, you usually don't want to hire someone just because of a resume, which can be seen and used as a form of copy. You want to talk to them first. And you, as an employee, you don't want to accept a job without talking to the employer, even though with good copy, an employer can, quote unquote, close the sale and make someone else want to apply and work for a company. People need to talk to each other most times in a situation like that. So here's how to look at copy differently. Instead of copy is this magic wand where you wave it and money comes you know, flying at you in a very organized way, like a, a squadron of bombers or fighter pilots, um, look at copy as leverage. Copy is a way to multiply. You know, the old phrase is salesmanship multiplied. And, you know, that phrase can be insulting to women. And in some businesses, women do a better job selling than men. So it can also be inaccurate. So if we change the phrase to copy as a sales presentation multiplied, the idea is this. You can do more, more quickly, more effectively, and at a lower cost, in many cases, using copy. But it's, this may still be a little fuzzy for people. So here's what I'd like to do. If, if you can imagine a stretch of road with seven segments, okay? And we're going to start at the beginning, and we'll, when we get to the end, we'll have finished the seventh segment. I want to take a moment to point out how vitally important headlines are in copy. As you may already know, the strength of your headline accounts for up to 80 or even 90% of the effectiveness of your ad. Think about that. What if there were a way to shortcut the headline writing process and start a new headline based on a proven winner? Well, there is. It's all in my book called Advertising Headlines That Make You Rich. This book is available now on Amazon.com advertising headlines that make you rich. What's unique about this book is it shows you exactly how to adapt a proven winner to your product or service, because I show you 10 adaptations for each headline in different niches and explain the psychology of how to adapt a headline. Advertising headlines that make you rich in hard copy and Kindle formats on Amazon. Now, back to our show. The first segment is lead generation. That's finding, getting the person, the qualified person who has money, ready to buy, identifying them and getting them to come to you or to come into your funnel. The second segment is building trust and conviction. And that's important. That's really important. Copy can do a big part there. Once there's trust and conviction in a qualified lead who wants to buy, Step three is closing the sale. That's where a lot of people stop, but there's actually more. The next segment is dealing with buyer's remorse. Um, that's a job that copy can do well, and so can a live phone call. Um, the fifth one is getting referrals. Get it, and whether that's an affiliate model or, like, let's go back to insurance sales, 
getting referrals of other friends or family members or business owners who might like the same thing. Um, step six is getting repeat business from the same customer when you don't have a continuity program, getting them to buy something else. And step seven is when you do have a continuity program, keeping them buying month after month, which is quite a challenge in and of itself. Uh, copy can do a lot there. Uh, so can the quality of the product or the service or the content that you're delivering. That's almost more important. Or the experience that they received while they made the purchase. Um, before we yeah. jump in, I wanted to take it back a couple of points and ask a question. Um, so you mentioned a lot of people stop at point number three, uh, using copy to close the sale. Uh, and, and it's been my experience that a lot of people, they kind of have this fear, like I made the sale. I don't want to do anything to mess it up. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to hopefully, uh, they, they gave me their money. I'm not going to bother them. I'm going to hope that, <laughs> that they forget that they gave me their money and, uh, and they don't ask for a refund or they, they don't have to, um, like you said, deal with the buyer's remorse. One of the things that I've noticed that has been very helpful for me is, I specifically ask customers or clients for a referral at that point, immediately after they've made a purchase uh, or after I've delivered the service that they paid for. Uh, yeah. I'll ask them for a referral because I find that it's a lot easier to get a good referral immediately after because they're looking for reinforcement that they made the right decision. And the way that I frame, I use copywriting techniques in the way that I ask for my referral because I, I frame it by first asking what was the biggest aha moment or the biggest um, breakthrough that you took away from this consultation or what was the best thing that you really enjoyed about the sales copy. Uh, and then after I get them thinking in that direction, that helps deal with the buyer's remorse. It helps them overcome the buyer's remorse. And then I ask for the referral. And a lot of times people will ignore that whole part of the process because they're afraid that. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll ask you what your opinion is. Why, why do you think it is that people stop it at point, uh, uh, point three after closing the sale with their copy? Well, I think the reason you give is one of them. And, um, and when, it's, when it's that reason, the reason you're talking about, I think you're right there. They maybe don't have confidence that people really like what they bought. They, they almost figure that maybe these people bought you know, to because they're a nuisance to get rid of them or because they're doing them a favor. Um, but when you are delivering overwhelming value and you're very confident in what you're doing, it changes your perspective and you're actually interested in finding out if there's more you can do to serve the customer. So a lot of it's mindset. But I think there's another reason too. A lot of people are just very tactical. They just think, okay, close the sale. Next step, go find another new customer. They're are so many businesses that are leaving so much money on the table. I, I think I think it was actually calculated. It's um, the gross national product of Ecuador is left on the table every year in the United States. That's a joke, but um, <laughs> lots of money on the table uh, because most business owners and most internet marketers and most authors and most consultants and most fill in the blank, whatever you want, uh, they are always looking for new leads, always looking for fresh blood, the thrill of the kill, you know, mistake, mistake. You can do so much better if you develop relationships with your customers 
and find new things to sell them, always knowing that you're going to be delivering more value than the money that they're paying you for. But it's not easy for people to embrace that at first. It, it is a different mindset. And then that leads to, to the uh, sixth and seventh point that you made, um, which is uh, selling them something else or getting them on a continuity program. How, how much, it's been my experience that it takes a lot more effort and even customer acquisition costs are just amplified greatly for the first purchase in comparison to repeat purchases or continuity purchases. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's statistics. It costs four, five, six times as much more to get a new customer as to sell to an existing one. Yeah, so it's so strange that so many people stop at number three with their sales copy. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is also, I think, um, the result of not having a vision and not having a plan, um, not having a strategy for your business, but just saying, okay, well, we're here to sell stuff. So let's go sell some more. Let's go find someone else to sell some more stuff to. Yeah. Sorry to divert the conversation. I just really wanted to get into that. No, these are really, really great questions. I think people need to think about, they want to, develop, you know, businesses that last, you know, over the years and decades. I think yeah. they're great questions. Okay. And, and copywriters too, copywriters who want to develop client relationships that last over the years and decades. There are such people in such relationships, you know, but you have to look at it differently. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's like you said, it's a totally different mindset. Yeah. So, all right. So let me, you know, we, we did take a, a very good tangent. Let me um, review the, the seven segments again, because it really leads into what I wanted to say next, which is one, lead generation, two, building trust and conviction, three, closing the sale, four, dealing with buyer's remorse, five, getting referrals, six, getting repeat business, and seven, in continuity, keeping your customer month to month. Now, the great thing about copy is you can use copy for any one of those seven pieces of the complete sales process or even more than one piece without using copy for every piece. And it all depends on testing and experience what they show you. Let let me give you two more examples. These were with my clients. Um, One is Abacus, the, the travel management company where I did a $40 million letter, I didn't close any sales. All I did was generate leads, but that was all they needed. They were brilliant at everything else. They were brilliant at closing the sale and keeping the customer. But they were at their wit's end trying to generate leads. Nothing else was working, and this letter did. So you see, sometimes you find the weakest link in the chain of those seven segments. And mine, you know, my letter for them was, segment one and and part of segment two, generating the lead and building some trust and conviction, at least enough and enough intrigue so that they would agree to have a meeting with Abacus. And then Bonnie and Dwayne took it from there. Okay. Uh, The second was an MLM training company. And they had a launch, which was for a $20 a month continuity program. That wasn't too hard. But they hired me to do something that was a little harder which was a back end into a, don't remember how much, but it was a four-figure, um, more than $1,000, a four-figure mentoring program. And that letter took me a long time to write. And 
it created over $1 million in back-end sales in a couple days. And if the server hadn't melted down when we were doing that, it probably would have been more. So those are two examples, you see. I mean, you know, in, in one case, I was just doing segment one and two. In the other case, which are, you know, lead generation and building trust, and in the other case, um, it it was getting repeat business right away, upsell, uh, mm-hmm. number segment six. Yeah, so really sales copy, uh, it, it's not just closing the sale, which is what most people think of it is. It, it really does apply to all seven segments that you were referring to. Yeah, I like to look at it as moving the person closer to the next sale. And closer might be right there, or it might be just one step closer. And how important is it to know what that next step is before you even start writing the copy? I think it's everything. I I think, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any route will get you there, but (laughs) might not get you where you want to go. It'll get you somewhere. So I think you need to know. All right. Yeah. So let let me wrap this up with a a little advice about this whole thing, because I know we've, we've covered the waterfront. Um, if you can sell the whole thing, if you can do your whole sale, even your whole business just with copy, by all means, do that. But if you need human interaction, test and tweak to figure out which segments, which pieces of the complete sales process need human interaction and which pieces can be leveraged and scaled up with copy. That's it. Nice. This, oh man, David, this, we did kind of like you said, we kind of covered a large, uh, a large body of water with this one, but, um, oh, I feel like this has been one of the most powerful episodes that we've done so far. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, I want to thank all the people who agreed with me and who argued with me and who made arrogant statements and, <laughs> and, and confused everybody on the, on the Facebook group. Seriously, it was, it was a really robust spirited discussion that, that led me to think about this. So Thanks, Facebook friends, fans, and followers. Thank you. Was this on your regular Facebook uh, profile then? Yeah, and David Garfinkel SF. Yep. Okay, cool. All right, David, again, fantastic episode. What do we have coming up next week? Ooh, we have eight ways to improve copy performance. Oh, all right. I feel like a kid at Christmas time. I guess we'll have to <laughs> wait until next week to unpack that one. I'll look forward to seeing everybody next week and especially you, Nathan. So look forward to then. See you then. Awesome. All right, copywriters until next week, this has been another episode of the copywriters podcast with the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Thanks again, David. Ah, thank you. Bye-bye everybody. If you found this show valuable, and you'd like to get it in the ears of other people, the best way to do that is to subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes.